we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we are continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. We usually talk about science and medicine and COVID topics, but that's really only a starting point of where things can go for our discussions. If listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, Dr. Howard Tenenbaum, who is Professor of Periodontology in the Faculty of Dentistry and Professor in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathophysiology in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto in the province of Ontario, Canada. Dr. Tenenbaum's professional expertise includes the physiology of what happens in the mouth and nose and in their cells and the immune system when the virus first enters the body. So, Howard, let's start. What have you been thinking about lately? Well, um, you know, as a uh, clinical scientist, clinician, and so on, um, I started to uh, think about myocarditis um, and periodontitis, which is what I treat, periodontal disease. Uh, but this actually goes way back, or, or several years back, maybe about uh, uh, 15 years, um, when um, I actually was treating, believe it or not, a cardiologist who did research, and he studied um post-myocardial infarction congestive heart failure using a, a mouse model where they would ligate the left anterior descending artery, induce an MI. And, so, we're and so we have to talk for lay people. So that means we're giving oh, mice heart attacks. Right. We get, he, instead, of, instead of springing an IRS uh, audit on the mice, which also would induce heart, heart attacks, but much bigger and kill them. He decided instead to just ligate the one artery and that caused at least a survivable heart attack. And, uh, and then they would develop congestive failure, uh, a heart, congestive heart failure where the heart enlarges and um, um, it, it loses function. And eventually the only treatment might be uh, transplant, for example, there's medical management as well to prevent that. And, and often it's, it's uh, it's uh, lethal. And, and I, I, I was treating him and I said, you know, it's interesting when you look at post heart attack and congestive heart failure, that really at the root of it is this advancement of a scar that forms following the heart attack. A scar is made of connective tissues, predominantly collagen, which is the main pro one of the main proteins in the body, type one collagen. And it's made by cells called fibroblasts, which make collagen. And and interestingly, it's not the contractile heart cell that's the most common cell in the heart. It's the fibroblast. So, so there anything, are fibroblasts mix in with the, the, the contractile cells, the myosin and, and so on. Right. Oh. So they make a matrix or they make, a, a I guess, a three-dimensional matrix that allows the myocardiocytes to contract something. They wouldn't be able to do anything if they didn't, if they couldn't bind to that. that I sort see, of they have to have anchors at the ends of the cells that contract. Exactly. exactly. And so uh, I said, you know, uh, there's an end group of enzymes that, that break down and, uh, and help remodel in gum disease, periodontitis. They're, they're elevated in gum disease. And uh, what we see is not only breakdown of connective tissues, 
which is what would happen following a heart attack, but also um, the advancement of, of scar tissue around the teeth affected by gum disease and even enlargement of some of the soft tissues um, in response to all this. And it seems to be tied very closely to elevation in inflammatory proteins, genes that code for inflammatory proteins, um, definitely related to elevations in a group of enzymes that breaks down uh, collagen, this, this protein. Uh, and these, these enzymes are called matrix metalloproteinases. And I had done a little reading and I said to them, you know, um, the, the matrix metalloproteinases, MMPs, as we call them, they're also elevated following heart attack. And they seem to also be elevated in um, patients who have congestive heart failure. We didn't know about myocarditis yet. That wasn't on, I mean, obviously people had myocarditis back but then. But it wasn't wholesale on the radar yet, that's right. Right, it, it just wasn't a big issue with the two of us because he was mainly studying heart failure and I was looking at connective tissue dysregulation uh, following the development of gum disease. And so I said, what if we used um, something that could inhibit these, these enzymes, these matrix metalloproteinases, uh, which are elevated in both diseases, uh, maybe we could inhibit uh, congestive heart failure. I said, because we use it to treat gum disease and we use, uh, we use actually an agent called doxycycline, which is an antibiotic, um, but we can even use it in doses that aren't high enough to kill bacteria. So it's not like it's killing an infection to control gum disease because the end, the, 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 the doxycycline seems to help to block or reduce the elevation in those enzymes to a more normal level, allowing the tissues around teeth to heal. So I said, don't you think the same thing might happen in the heart? And so he agreed, uh, as it happens, our specialty program in periodontics in Toronto is a grad program. So all the students have to do a master's, a full master's. And so we assigned a student, Jonathan Adam, to uh, his lab. Peter Liu is the fellow I was working with. Um, and uh, assigned him to his lab. And, and we started to test whether inhibition of these protease, these, these enzymes, uh, could improve um, and or reduce the development of heart failure. Um, in his animal model system. And uh, so interestingly, at this point, we didn't use doxycycline. We wanted to use something that was a in and an in-development um, drug. A patentable product. Makes the yes. money there, right? Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't my interest per se, but I think he might have been somehow associated with, believe it or not, Pfizer. As it happens, Pfizer was making a, uh, an MMP inhibitor, this enzyme inhibitor. Um, it, it, it wouldn't have the same broad spectrum of functions that doxy has, and doxycycline has a lot of broad spectrum functions, which I'll talk about later to explain why it's perhaps even better than uh, just a plain old MMP inhibitor. Nevertheless, um, Jonathan, our student, induced heart, heart attacks in these consenting mice and uh, fully full consent. consent and totally informed consent, uh, something like that, which was obtained for the vaccines, I think, yes. uh, was obtained and um, uh, treated them with um, doxy, not doxy, this, this MMP inhibitor, which would be sort of like doxy. And uh, he did uh, fake surgery, sham surgery, so that, you know, so everything was controlled, you know, randomized, controlled, everything 
the surgery was, you know, they had animals who were, they just made an incision and, and opened up, but didn't ligate or tie the artery animals who didn't have anything done animals who had a heart attack and then heart attack plus the, uh, uh, the inhibitor and so on. And the outcome at that time was, was extremely uh, exciting. Um, we we ended up not publishing for reasons which are too di- a little difficult to explain because the actual quality of the work was very high, but some strange things were were going on. But nevertheless, he did publish publish uh, his uh, thesis, and and what we demonstrated was that in the animals that were, that had heart attacks, of course, uh, if you didn't do anything, um, they all developed congestive heart failure, reduced uh, cardiac output. Um, and so on. Um, they had uh, increased uh, production of gene, or sorry, increased expression of genes that cause inflammation. Because heart heart disease, just like gum disease, are both inflammatory. And I'll get to that in a minute too. Uh, and um, and and what we found was that um, the the inhibitor was able to prevent by about 50%, as good as the gold standard, which at the time was an ACE inhibitor, it was able to inhibit just as uh, effectively heart enlargement following uh, a heart attack. It, um, it it prevented the the sort of microscopic changes that we see if one were to do a um, microscopic evaluation of congestive heart failure, the, the heart, the heart uh, muscle or the chambers were more normal size. There wasn't change in the shape of the heart that you would see in the controls. Um, there was decreased deposition of scar. And these are all significant, by the way, clinically significant, but also if you use statistics, what we call statistically significant, which is, uh, which is interesting. And, and also there was a significant, uh, reduction in the expression of these inflammatory, uh, uh, genes that produce inflammatory proteins. And, and just to backtrack a little bit, heart disease, atherosclerosis, uh, these are inflammatory conditions. Uh, people used to think it was just a bland sort of condition, oh, it was an injury, whatever. No, these are inflammatory conditions. And periodontitis is an inflammatory condition. And backtracking a little further, we knew even before we started doing this research that there was a, a statistical correlation between um, periodontitis and heart disease. So if someone had periodontitis, they were more likely to have heart disease. We've now shown bi-directional relationships between um, heart disease, sorry, uh, between diabetes, which is another inflammatory condition, and gum disease. Gum disease can make heart disease worse and heart disease uh, can make uh, gum disease worse, evidently. And a lot of it may be related to the function of these white blood cells called neutrophils, uh, which are changed even just in the presence of gum inflammation. You know, gingivitis, you bleed up when you brush your teeth. Just that in an experimental model done in a lab uh, of one of my friends, Mike Logauer, um, changed marrow production of neutrophil cells um, and caused these white blood cells to become very activated, meaning they produce even more matrix metalloproteinase, more MMP, more inflammatory proteins. Well, I've so heard of somebody, yeah. I've heard of cases of somebody who had an infected tooth that was low level and didn't bother him until finally he had it dealt with and cleaned out the infection and his arthritis stopped. 
Is there, are um, things stopped? Yeah. Now, is it a coincidence? I suppose it could be, but um, we we have plenty of evidence for sure in the diabetes field of a bidirectional relationship, and even dementia, there seems to be evidence of a bidirectional relationship. And it, in in all probability, it boils down to, um, I would say, systemic inflammation. And also, um, I reasoned at the time, even back then, well, I use an MMP inhibitor. I'm going to just use the word MMP to denote those, those enzymes uh, to treat gum disease. Uh, so uh, if it worked for gum disease, why wouldn't it work for heart disease? Well, we also know, for example, smoking makes gum disease worse and makes heart disease worse. So the pathophysiological mechanisms, the the mechanisms that cause both diseases are probably very parallel. And so environmental or toxic well, factors, factors that exacerbate one are likely to exacerbate the other. We've even seen that with um, even with peritonitis. Maybe, but smoking has got 1,100 different toxic chemicals in it. So um, true, I, but I don't necessarily think it has to be the same mechanism. Well, it may not be, except for this. Uh, we isolated the aryl hydrocarbons. That, well, we didn't isolate them. We, we purchase them. But anyway, we uh, we utilized uh, the aryl hydrocarbons like uh, benzoapyrene, um, uh, which is found in cigarette smoke. It's an aryl hydrocarbon receptor um, agonist, and it um, upregulates inflammation and so on. Um, and uh, we so showed... It does that, both things, right? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And what we found was that it uh, inhibited bone formation almost completely mainly early stage bone formation. And that if we then provided a blocker of the aryl hydrocarbons, these smoke-derived hydrocarbons, we provided a blocker, something called resveratrol, it completely restored bone formation in, in cell culture. And now we've shown it even in periodontal disease models, in, v, in, in animal models, that it completely reverses the smoke-related um, uh, disease caused the, in, in the animal models. In some, it reverses it. In others, different types of resveratrol block the aryl hydrocarbon effects. Well, we showed a very similar phenomenon when we looked at um, animals, LDH receptor knockout animals, that if you put them on a McDonald's diet, um, they they develop metabolic syndrome. and Just like and, humans. Just like humans, yeah, and we we um, we treated one group with resveratrol, with uh, not with 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 um, sorry resveratrol, and the other one uh, uh, without, and uh, we found that the resveratrol completely blocked both metabolic syndrome, atherosclerosis, vascular mineralization, and then the on the other side we know that it blocks. Uh, periodontal destruction. So again, it's the same, a similar molecule, which seems to be able to modulate the responsiveness, disease or otherwise, in two very uh, different systems. So just a little anecdote here. It's kind of funny. My grad student at the time showed me photos of mice uh, with metabolic syndrome and given the McDonald's diet, mice with metabolic syndrome given the McDonald's diet, and resveratrol. And the mice on the McDonald's without the resveratrol were huge. I mean, they were really fat. And I said to him, you know, um, if you're gonna show these photographs in your paper, you have to make sure that you don't take close-ups of one group and 
far go far back on the other group making one look smaller because it honestly looked like he the the focal plane was different he said i didn't i did he said i took the exact same distance so here's evidence again where um two different disease models but with similar underlying pathophysiological mechanisms which can be either exacerbated or made worse or perhaps made better by the same compound and that's what led me into the well maybe mmp inhibition if it works for periodontal disease should work for congestive failure and it did so maybe we should be putting mcdonald's going to put red wine on on its menu it should do that but the red wine by the way has to come from a moist climate so california red wine isn't good french red wine um uh maybe southern ontario but you don't want to even try that wine um because uh, resveratrol is also an antifungal agent so the grapes make that in their skins um to protect against fungal infection in a moist climate oh so botrytisized red wine I, I that's mostly white wine not not red wine but okay yeah so it's got to it's got to it's, it's got to be red wine. i suspect this is going to come from supplements somehow not not from red wine rats you're you're, you're right and although if you take enough red wine to load yourself up on resveratrol you won't actually care if you have gum disease right. that's right or heart disease for that matter that's anyway right. so now fast forward and we're dealing with myocarditis well uh, frankly, I look at myocarditis as a more or less an extension of of the science that we did with congestive heart failure. In fact, myocarditis is a precursor, uh, or at least a precursor risk factor for congestive heart failure, as far as I understand. And so I thought, well, and, and again, started doing some reading, and realized, oh, look, it's it's deja vu all over again, where we may be dealing with similar underlying mechanisms, but in the case of post vaccine induced myocarditis um we have other players most uh, most famously the spike protein which um of course is i think uh, key here too yeah so we actually were at a commercial break point so we're going to take a break and come back everybody please stay tuned Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Dr. Howard Tenenbaum. 
We were just talking about that uh, myocarditis it has a parallel and similar mechanism to the kind of scar tissue that forms after heart attacks and congestive heart failure. And therefore, some of the same biological reasoning might apply to its amelioration. And right, and exactly. And, and, and again, the parallel here is, is the periodontitis model that, that I'm very familiar with clinically, uh, particularly with regard to the use of these inhibitors, the MMP matrix metalloproteinase uh, inhibitors. So it got me to thinking um, that uh, wouldn't, wouldn't it make sense that if you have these post-vaccine induced myocarditis cases popping up all over the place, uh, that we try to come up with a treatment uh, or at least a, the outline of a treatment that, that might effectively manage not only myocarditis per se, and by the way, who knows, it might, but myocarditis related to vaccine injury in particular. And um, one of the uh, things that you have to realize is that doxycycline um, doesn't just downregulate pro-inflammatory mediators like the, by the way, like that, um, uh, that drug that was in development, but I don't think they ever developed it further. Um, but um, it also binds to the spike protein. And I think it, it, I don't recall specifically if it binds to the ACE2 receptor, but it certainly binds to spike protein and therefore inhibits uh, spike protein's ability to bind to the ACE2 receptor and be internalized. Um, doxycycline has also been shown to inhibit uh, replication of SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so um, it, it just made sense that if we're looking at this, we needed to maybe take the spike protein into account, uh, also the inflammation into account. Doxycycline clearly has anti-inflammatory effects, but so does a drug that we're all familiar with, ivermectin. And uh, I, we haven't done any laboratory tests yet of this. This was more of a, just a hypothesis, but it's quite probable that ivermectin and doxycycline would at least if not additive, maybe if not synergistically, but certainly additively could affect um, uh, proliferation of SARS-CoV-2, but that's another story. But certainly entry of spike protein, which I think there's increasing evidence that many people who's been vaccinated uh, continue to produce spike protein in certain regions of the body. So the, the heart, for example, may always be under attack from spike protein, either solubilized in the serum or maybe from direct production within the myocardium. And again, fibroblasts are easy to transfect and uh, they, they might be the ones producing most of the spike, not the myocardiocytes, but we, I don't know for sure. So I thought, well, let's, why don't we, we should recommend a combination of, of ivermectin because anti-inflammatory as well, doxycycline anti-inflammatory, ivermectin blocks access of the spike protein to, its, to the ACE2 receptor, so does doxy. Um, and I think there are other features of, of um, ivermectin, which people have been finding useful in post-vaccine um, uh, injury, including remyelinization, apparently. Uh, this might be useful for, for GBS, Guillain-Barre. Guillain-Barre for, for, for neurological damage from the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we added it and, it, and it's fascinating because 
then uh, who's, uh, Peter McCullough, Proctor, and Wynn published a very interesting paper. I think you'd even sent it to me, but I'd seen it before. Clinical rationale for SARS-CoV-based spike protein detoxification. Um, at first glance, you might say, oh, well, that's another treatment. That we could that we should be using for maybe for myocarditis, particularly if we suspect uh, spike protein is playing a role. It involves nat the use of natokinase, which is, it breaks down certain proteins, it breaks down blood clots, uh, it, and there's bromelain, which is an anti-inflammatory, and they also recommend curcumin, which is also antiviral and anti-inflammatory. And I look at that and I go, wait a minute. This the, these these um, these agents proposed by McCullough et al. are 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 virtually non-toxic. Uh, well, they non do have clotting effects, anti-clotting yeah. effects. So one yes. has to be aware of that. Yeah, but when I've spoken to a lot of clinicians who've used it, they two hundred one, they've said they they actually don't find that it's an it's an issue. It's a theoretical issue for sure. Right. But you still got to be aware of it, especially if you're working on an anticoagulated patient, especially the natokinase in particular. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, so I looked at them, and, I, and I'm thinking, well, this is actually a, the that I see a marriage here between, yeah. uh, as we say in Yiddish, a shidduch. I see between uh, this model proposed by by McCulladell and and the one that I proposed, but. Um, well, let I, me back. I, let me back up a, a minute. You also have you also uh, uh, possibly putting zinc into the recipe, and there, the, the, you know, one of the things about the great leap forward from the lab to the human is dosage. That yes. In the lab, you can give any dosage you want, whereas in humans, the range of effective and safe dosages, the, the you know, that might have a, a relatively narrow range before you get to toxicity or efficacy right and so you you however have been using these things for your periodontitis treatments right you already know what works for that right. and what dosages work right. right which which is a big deal that is a really big deal because you have evidence in one model of the disease periodontitis for safe and effective dosing without adverse effects right uh, especially the um the use of what's called i guess you're referring to sub-antimicrobial dose uh, yes doxy? well i think yeah. we should put doxycycline in the water supply along with fluoride yeah, fluoride yeah well, that, oh, that'll go over well um <laughs> i could put it in table salt yeah maybe table salt along with iodine yeah um but uh so we know the dose and what's interesting um, is that we know the safe dose of this drug for use for infection too. And, and uh, so what we proposed was that initially when you're treating maybe a early onset or an active myocarditis, and maybe one that's, you know, uh, more severe than, than average, or even if not, but just at, at the beginning. So we we're suggesting that you could use, a, say, 100 milligrams of this doxycycline a day. That's still half the regular dose used to treat infections in many cases. So it's still safe. Then the idea is later on, once the patient stabilizes, that we could go to the lower dose, which is extremely safe. And, and in fact, it's, it's below the dose that kills bacteria. So you don't even have to worry about the emergence of resistant bacteria. And patients can take this along maybe with the ivermectin, which is also extremely safe. And the other 
maybe the the McCullough protocol too. So I'm I would be a little bit concerned about using a half dose of doxycycline because of potential development of resistant strains, because that you know if you give if you clobber an organism with a big dose, it's it's going to get killed. If you give yeah. an intermediate dose, some of the organism will survive, especially the ones that can counteract, become resistant right. to the antibiotics. So I like the idea of starting off with a sub antimicrobial dose to start with. But one of the things you you didn't mention is that a large so so myocarditis patients in the COVID and COVID vaccine era, the ones that are clinically recognized. They go to the hospital, they get treated, they're told to go home and take it easy for a few days or weeks or years. And they think that, you know, they can walk out of the hospital, they're not really having chest pain, they can, they're told not to do any heavy exercise for a while, and they think that they're going to live a normal life. But that scar tissue is in That's the That's not heart. the case, yeah. It's not the Me case, and it comes back to haunt them in five or ten years. Yeah. What you're saying is start them on this protocol, which is cheap, and just make it an everyday protocol, and right. I, I, I do it for a year, two years. You're treating a chronic disease. Um, right. By the way, when, when I talk about low-dose doxy, I don't mean like 50 milligrams. I mean... Literally, we know we've measured it's below the minimal inhibitory concentration in the blood. Uh, so, and and they before they got the approval for a drug called periostat, which is just low dose doxycycline, sub antimicrobial dose doxy. Before they got the approval, of course, the biggest uh, hurdle they had to jump was um, was uh, to show that uh, uh, resistant organisms did not arise, um, and that's what they showed. But having said that, what I think we don't know at this point, which is why I I, I agree with a lot of what you just said, is um, that was before studies of microbiome were available and so on. God knows what a, even just 50 milligrams of doxy would do to the microbiome. And the so-called sub-antimicrobial dose, we don't know. It might do something as well, but much less likely. Bottom line is, I'd rather have a shift in my microbiome and not die of um heart failure uh five know, years later 10 years five later, years later. Right. and 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 i mean it is it's it's there's a huge risk um what is it like 50 percent go on to develop a need for either a heart transplant or or death in 10 years that's right. death. yeah so it's, it's but the other thing is mild myocarditis that that's yeah. that's crazy that's right but you know that the that study in thailand that found that Two percent, I think, uh, vaccinated young yeah. adults had um, blood marker evidence of myocarditis. Mm -hmm. That, you know, I, I hate to say it, but if we're going to measure everybody, and then you just you treat the people with with those numbers, regardless yeah. of symptoms, regardless of hospitalization, yeah. regardless of anything. Well, yeah. Look, um, it's interesting that you say that, regardless of symptoms. You know, using my my disease that I treat, treat a lot, my, uh, periodontitis, I mean, it's unless you have an abscess, an acute abscess, it's a painless disease. And a lot of people don't even realize it until their teeth start getting loose. Um, and so, you know, the asymptom treating a disease that's demonstrable by, let's say, MRI and, and other marker, blood markers, um, even if the patient is supposedly asymptomatic, believe me, they're not asymptomatic. They're asymptomatic, but the they have signs and uh, biochemical signs, MRI signs. Um, 
and and we just know what's going to happen uh, to these people and what we don't know is how fast it's going to happen uh, well actually just not i don't want to raise excess fears here we know what's going to happen to somebody with sim- mild but sim- and symptomatic myocarditis who recovers in a few days yeah that, that that is being labeled as mild we don't know what happens to somebody who's asymptomatic but measurable myocarditis right whether right. that is a transient state or whether that's a long-term state also yeah. we don't yeah. know we we don't know and and given given the number of potential of people who who have potentially experienced some sort of myocardiocyte damage uh and 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 sub even subclinical myocarditis um it, it frightens me a bit because I think we're only just maybe now and maybe even now we're not, it's still too soon, but in the next three years or four years, we might see a very frightening rise in uh, congestive failure. I, I understand actually there has been a, a rise already in congestive failure, but I, I forget, I saw a quick reference somewhere, but I, I don't remember the paper. Okay. Um, so let me go back to the question that I was asking before we dealt with the dose of low dose doxycycline, which I think you were saying to me before, 20 milligrams twice a day. 20 milligrams. We use um, uh, the sub antimicrobial, the sub, you know, so we, we avoid as much as possible resistance is 20 milligrams twice a day in some, in a, it's, it's a form called periostat, but um, I suppose you can cut pills, but periostat is precisely 20 milligrams. And then uh, there's a drug um, that was developed on the basis of periostat for management of rosacea. In, in the States, it's called Oratia. In Canada, it's Acrolon. And all it is, is doxycycline in a slow release form. So it's a 40 milligram pill, slow release. And, and again, they demonstrated that the drug level never reaches that which would kill bacteria. And so you're not putting, the, hypothetically, not putting the patient at risk. For so that's a once a day. And that's just once a day. But on the other hand, it's a patent medication. It's going to cost you $100 a day or something. Uh, True. Uh, Well, periostat's patent too, but I don't think it's nearly as expensive. And you know, I mean, really, think about it. If 20 milligrams is okay, BID, I think that on average, 25 milligrams is probably okay twice a day. And uh, so you just buy 100 milligram doxycycline pills and cut them in quarters. Right, right. I've advocated for that behavior for other medications um, that work very effectively. Uh, yeah. Even if, if you can't cut exactly in, in a half or a quarter, it's close enough. Yeah. I mean, I tell people, look, do you think they came up? I love aspirin, low-dose aspirin. That's one of my favorite drugs. 81 milligrams. Not 80, not 90. Right, 81. 81. And so I tell you, they, they base these doses on... 81 and a quarter. Yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. And then and they're based on average responses and blood levels and so on. And it's an estimate and everyone's different. Everyone's a different size too. So really we should be dosing on milligram per kilogram basis, but that's not how right. But 81 is, is a quarter of a 325 milligram regular aspirin tablet. Exactly. You just cut yeah. it in quarters. Exactly. Exactly. But God forbid you should cut it in quarters, you know, as opposed to right. buying baby aspirin. Right. So, but, so let yeah. me ask, what about resveratrol? What what dosing do you use for that? We for resveratrol, uh, we use 500 milligrams a day. That it's sort of the industry standard. It's not absorbed all that well. Uh, there, uh, so we so we um, we use about 500 milligrams a day to try to obtain a uh, clinically meaningful dose. And we did see in one model of um, 
gingivitis, bleeding, gum bleeding, that the people on the resveratrol who were smokers, and not smoke, we didn't look at smokers in this case, it was um, just bleeding uh, with resveratrol, and it it, it stopped bleeding uh, several days earlier than uh, control. Um, and uh, control being, and all patients had cleanings done. They had to have cleanings for ethics approval, even though uh, gingivitis is left for a few more days, ain't going to kill you or cause tooth loss, but we had to do that. Anyway, um, so we use 500 milligrams. There is um, another product uh, called, it's a, it's, um, it's a resveratrol dimer. And um, it's from a, a seed uh, it, it called um, Melinjo, Melinjo seed extract. And it's a resveratrol diamond, a dimer. It's called Gneetin C, G-N-E-T-I-N-C. And it seems to be even more potent than resveratrol and is well absorbed. It's made in Japan as a food additive. They even put it in bread. And um, so that might even be better, but, and it's generally regarded as safe. Um, but I don't think we can get it in North America yet. I see. All right. Well, we've come to another commercial break. So let's take a pause now and everybody, please come back. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news, liberty and justice for all. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Lean. Pure with premium ingredients. Global Healing's Pure Plant Protein offers 20 grams of protein per scoop, and it's a perfect way to maintain and build lean muscle while indulging yourself. It combines enzymes and probiotics to maximize nutrient absorption, improving digestion, and your gut health. Available in vanilla and chocolate flavors, elevate your protein consumption while supporting your overall wellness with Pure Plant Protein. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Dr. Howard Tenenbaum. We were just talking about something that over the COVID pandemic I've learned to favor, which is the ability of patients to have their own independent choices about what they have access to if there are roadblocks in the medical system limiting their access to prescription medications. So that was one of my reasons for thinking about resveratrol because it's a supplement, can yeah. be purchased as a supplement 
and within appropriate dosing that people are smart enough to figure out if, if the standard yeah. dose is, is safe, then they could people can choose to do that if they have a reason to. If they read up on it, they listen to our conversation, they think, yeah. you know, they've got periodontitis or whatever it is, and and or they think they have spike issues. And it's something to try in addition to everything else. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it doesn't just block um, uh, smoke-related hydrocarbons. It's, it's actually a very potent antioxidant, resveratrol. We, we, in fact, uh, we studied in, in non-smoking models of gum disease. And we didn't even, in, in, again, in mice, and uh, we didn't even clean the, the, the teeth of the mice, which is sort of one of the basic things you do. The IRB yeah, didn't make you do that on, on the mice. And mice don't floss. No. They never floss. No. I can tell you right now. And um, uh, what we found was even when the surge, the sorry, the affected area wasn't had not received debridement of any cleaning of any sort, which goes a long way to improving periodontal disease, um, they they got better on on this 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 um, double molecule of resveratrol called gnetin C. It's just two resveratrol molecules uh, together from the Malingo seed. And uh, not only did they get better, all the lost bone and other soft tissues that have been destroyed by the induction of gum disease in those animals was reversed completely in the presence of the disease-causing agents. So if you go to the heart model and you think about it, you know, maybe even in the presence of spike protein who knows because the other the other side of this is is oxidative stress the production of these what we call free radicals which plays a big role in inflammatory disease heart disease and periodontitis resveratrol as i said is a, is a potent anti-inflammatory well guess what doxycycline uh, sorry antioxidant doxy doxycycline is also an antioxidant it, it, these, wow. these molecules are multifunctional so were these these mice that you studied how old were they? Are, were they juvenile they were, or were they adult? They were adult mice. Uh, so they didn't have the, well, um, uh, the controls didn't regenerate uh, at all. And, um, and uh, as I said, even totally untreated animals, in other words, untreated mechanically, which you would ordinarily do, like how do we induce the gum disease? We, we literally tie silk ligatures around their teeth, little tiny little, bits of silk like floss and they develop gum disease and start losing bone um we left those in place because if you remove them in, in the younger animals you can get regeneration if you remove the silk ligatures you're, it's like you're treating the animal but we left those in place even leaving them in place the the resveratrol type molecule was able to either stop the disease or at least uh, inhibit its development we found that it inhibited development of disease and in the case of this dimer, this double molecule, literally reverse the disease. That's the one I, I would love to see in North America as we move forward with these heart-related or yeah. other degenerative cases where the where there's oxidative stress, upregulation of, of pro-inflammatory or um, proteins that stimulate inflammation, and also upregulation of these enzymes that literally destroy surrounding tissue and and promote the advancement of scar formation and so on. Well, so let me ask, doesn't, uh, as pe people senesce, as they get older, don't they lose some of this ability 
to A, regenerate, and B, allow more oxidative damage of things like teeth and gums and, yeah. and so yeah. on anyway. So yeah. isn't it, wouldn't there be a preventive role of, of you Probably. know, any of I mean, the it's like we're rusting slowly. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. And so uh, taking an antioxidant or antioxidants um, would seem to be a uh, logical thing to do for many chronic diseases. Again, from arthritis, periodontitis, diabetes, uh, you name it. Um, the uh, You mentioned zinc. Um, and then I think the other, the other um, part of this could be vitamin D. Um, well, everybody should be taking vitamin D anyway, yeah. anyway, no matter what. Exactly. And, and, uh, again, one would think of this being a potentially useful, useful agent, but having said that, after we wrote that little Substack article, just throwing out this idea, two people tried it. Now it's an N of two. And I was a little embarrassed about talking about my N of two. We're not two. looking for statistical significance here. Good because you won't find it. Um, however, you will find clinical significance, which is interesting. One patient had pulmonary hypertension with a development of, of right side failure and stuff like this and um, um, enlargement. And he, he was a, he's a, he was a, he's an MD or, and, and, and a cyclist. And after the vaccine, he could no longer uh, get on a bike. He could, he was, obviously pulmonary hypertension, uh, dyspnea on exertion and all of that sort of stuff. He tried this treatment and, and he said within a week or so, and I still can't believe it took that little time, but anyway, he, he got on his bike. He was able to bike. So how, what was the extent of his treatment? Was it all four of the things you were talking about? It was, uh, he took the doxycycline, ivermectin, and I think in his case, zinc but i can't be totally sure because these are not case reports we we're actually this group that you and i are in i've, I've asked the clinicians if they have cases if they would mind treating him and, and several have volunteered to do that well treatment. i know who you're talking about i've i've spoken with him too oh yeah okay and um then there was another case which was fascinating and this one uh came from one of the members of, of that group that we're in and um who who wrote the subs who does the Substack where i contribute in an article sid Belford. And um, this woman had had a heart attack after each injection. I don't know why she didn't get the message, but, um, well, she did get the message, but it was modified RNA. And um, <laughs> she, she, I, she was, I think, going into failure. And um, they read this. Oh, why'd they read this? Because she's the godmother of the person who writes the substack. That's how she found it. And so she started taking this treatment again, ivermectin, doxycycline, and I believe uh, zinc. Um, but don't, don't, uh, I wouldn't count on the zinc, but certainly doxy and ivermectin, 100%. And she goes to her car, she starts feeling better. And, you know, okay, placebo effect. But the cardiologist said, I don't know what's happening here, but your heart's getting better. Now, I don't have the rest of the story. I don't know if she told the cardiologist or whether he or she, the cardiologist, asked or or if told believed what he or she was told because that's the other problem that i'm sure you've seen i've seen that even if you were to take somebody and nine times out of ten they die from this condition but you give them this treatment and they don't die 
and and so you know and they not only don't die but they improve the doctors are still more likely to say oh well you know some people just go into remission it it it, it happens well there actually is a calculus of causal reasoning for individual patients that involves um in part de-challenge and re-challenge meaning yes. that, that happened if, in Israel. If, right that if you take a medication away and it comes back that's evidence and if you give it again and it goes away that's double evidence and that those two things if they're clear is tantamount to causal evidence of proof in that person yeah and that makes a lot of sense and we've seen it and i've tried it clinically if i'm not quite sure a medication is it really working and then they come back the next week and they're get me back on this stuff uh you know so yes that's that's a well-known phenomenon and, and that's part of i think uh, the bradford hill criteria they use no bradford hill is is for general causation involving large numbers of subjects and right but don't brings... they have challenge and re-challenge is one of the criteria no be... no this is this is for the individual causation okay. schema that um the naranjo criteria right. is one scheme one the fda and the upsala um, group have another one, but they all involve yeah. various and, and I think, challenge. I, I think there was there was evidence in some of the Israeli data, health ministry data, challenge, rechallenge um stuff, uh, uh findings, or a pe- per- person got better and then they hit them with the vaccine again, they get exactly the same disease that they had the other time. Right. And uh um so uh, far be it for me to yet ask these two people to stop taking the medications. They're so excited. But uh, it would be interesting to see if they how long the effects last. That's another thing. Um, my feeling is that it, it would not be a temporary. I don't think the, this would be a temporary effect because you're not dealing with resistance. You're not dealing with, um, you know, resistance, let's say, to chemotherapeutic drugs that you see in cancer. This is modification of the intracellular pathways that contribute to both inflammation, cytokine storm even, but also... Um, allow for viral replication you're basically throwing a, a, a wrench into the works not allowing the cells to replicate the virus and not allowing the spike protein to get into the cells um and uh then of course uh down regulating the um it, the activity not the expression but the activity of the metalloproteinases which come from neutrophils those those white blood cells called neutrophils those those are the that, that's the one of the main culprits hyperactive uh, neutrophils so i wonder in our modern higher processed food fat diets that are inflammogenic so to speak mm-hmm. that whether we should be thinking about this in a more general way of using these things as part of supplements as part of diet uh, to some degree that it, does everybody have subclinical periodontitis no. everybody over 50 everybody over 60 uh a large number well they, they certainly have gingivitis um probably you know 70 percent of the population will have gingivitis which is a precursor uh, gingivitis is just swelling of the of the gums themselves the periodontitis which leads to tooth loss is when that swelling uh starts to extend the swelling and inflammation starts to extend into the bone causing loss of bone around the teeth and they become loose and it's and that's when it's really a host phenomenon it's not even the bacteria it's a bacterial disease uh it's induced by bacteria 
So this uh, is this related to oral hygiene? Is it, aside from smoking, is, is it related to oral hygiene and you know toothbrushing, flossing, all the dental? There is some that? weak epidemiological evidence, in my opinion, that suggests uh, that poor oral hygiene habits might be correlated to increased risk for um, the, some of these other inflammatory diseases, including diabetes, heart disease. Well, but, there, you know, there's evidence like that, lifestyle there too. There, there's lifestyle. evidence that that tooth loss is related to things like risk for pancreatic cancer. There were yes. plenty of studies of that at, at one point. Yep. And that that is a uh, you know a common inflama- inflammation kind of mechanism, likely undermining that if it's true. Yeah. And and you know I mean as I said we you know there there are behavioral things that you can use uh, hey, sorry behavioral models you can say well look. They're not flossing and they're not brushing. They're not eating right either. And they're not exercising. Uh, yes, but they try to control for these things, uh, these confounders, when they look at these correlations. And and um, uh, I think at, at the end of the day, uh, we're looking at uh, an inflammatory background. Uh, again, as I said before, in my uh, friend's lab, I participated in uh, helping design and write up the study. Um, students who de- who were allowed to develop um, just gum inflammation. They didn't floss. They didn't floss or brush for a week. And dental students who wanted to pass, so that thing was, <laughs> they did that. And um, we found the development of hyperactive white blood cells in their blood and their marrow. Um, so there's a systemic effect. And so if people have lost teeth, some might say, "Oh, it's because they're not eating the right foods anymore." Well, yeah, okay, I suppose. Um, but if they've lost teeth and it's and the tooth loss is related to gum disease, there seems to be a strong correlation. I'm not sure about whether or not tooth loss caused by dental decay has the same risk. And I don't know if it's been um, analyzed down to that level. My, my gut feeling is that it, they wouldn't be correlated. You lost teeth because of periodontal or gum disease an inflammatory condition that has definite systemic effects on other organ systems and, and inflammation in general, uh, whereas tooth decay doesn't, as far as I know, uh, but can result in, in lots of tooth loss as well. Uh, but tooth decay itself is generally hygiene-related, no? It's hygiene-related, uh, but it can also be related to um, uh, an acidogenic uh, environment. So somebody with the gastroesophageal reflux, like uh, heartburn, mm-hmm. uh, they can uh, start to develop decay. Actually, um, it seems that there are there may be people who are developing decay post-vax. And uh, one thought is that, well, maybe gu- uh, saliva flow has been reduced uh, because saliva flow plays a very important role in preventing decay, good saliva flow. But the other there's been an uptick in, in gastroesophageal reflux disease too, post-vaccine. Wow. And uh, as it happens, um, and that could contribute uh, significantly to the an uptick in tooth decay caused not by bad oral hygiene, just by acidic an acidic oral environment. You know, there are, are cultural practices, not in the U.S., but in South Asia, of people who don't brush after every meal, but they rinse their mouths with clear water after every meal. Uh, to promote oral hygiene yeah know, and it's cheap and easy not invasive yeah, well that it's interesting because that that would all that would do and i'm not saying it's bad uh it's good 
But what it would do would be to probably wash out uh, a lot of the uh, food debris, which is a, which is which provides the bacteria that make these acids that break down teeth, which is what tooth decay is, right. and it it starves them if they rinse all that stuff out of their mouth. And they might even be rinsing certain bacteria out of their mouth, but more likely it's just they're rinsing the food, uh, the the nutrients for for those uh, for those bacteria. Um, yeah. Um, very interesting. These connections are, you know, things that doctors keep in their lane and, and dentists keep in, in their lane and, and that we cross them makes for what I think is interesting observations that and, and epiphanies like you had that um, are unusual and and have the potential to move fields forward. Yeah. You and know, with fun, new ideas. That's the most fun part. Um we actually wrote a paper. We were asked, we were invited to write a paper, but it was peer reviewed, um, where we actually looked at the sort of the um, uh, the intersection, if you will, of of what we call, let's say, dental research or periodontal research and and medical research. Really, it's all biomedical research. At the end of the day, it's biomedical research. Um, we wrote this paper, and and we and we looked at it from the perspective of COVID at the early in the early stages of the pandemic saying you know a lot of the stuff that that we're looking at and a lot of the inflammatory markers uh, that we're looking at or underlying mechanisms that we're looking at in periodologies can be found in the cytokine storm associated with with uh with SARS uh and uh, and there were various therapeutic points at which agents that we've used for for management of oral inflammatory disease could well be used for management of, of even SARS, uh, yeah. uh, of COVID, sorry, of, of COVID-19 and SARS. Um, and so it, it, actually, we've, we've actually run out of time. So we're going to have to have another conversation about this to, to, to cover this topic in, in its uh, full extent, um, which would be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope, um, that everybody's enjoyed our discussion today. And if you have questions, please submit them at americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. So Howard, thank you. This has been really great. I uh, enjoyed the discussion today. And thanks everybody for listening and please come back next week. <laughs>